Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. We got Farms, we got Ed. No gym today, but we got a special guest, our boy Perfecto Sanchez. He's going to talk to us about growing up in Harlem, uh, going to West Point, and serving in the military, and serving in the Iraq War, um, and appearing in a special documentary that really sort of shined light on his whole experience. Also, we're going to get into the fact that he's a conservative of color. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, so sit back and enjoy as we get into it. fellas we're back uh lower east side we've got a special guest here today our buddy perfecto sanchez um perfecto what's going on man good man it's good to see you guys you guys got a nice little setup going on here yeah you know we try we (laughs) We keep it we keep it pretty cache keep the carpet and everything so so we're we're minus one today jim uh is lost in boston um there's clearly a story to it (laughs) he's claiming uh business reasons but uh, the listeners can be the judge if that's a, a real reason, but we're going to get the full story when he gets back. We're going to start story. off with that, the pod with that. <laughs> <laughs> Explain yourself, Jim, as soon as he gets back. A hundred percent. But, um, so we brought on Perfecto today and Perfecto has been a buddy for a bit and he's Harlem raised. He's a, a captain in the military, went to West Point marketing guru. Um, and we wanted to bring him on cause one, uh, he, we know nothing about the military. Eddie and I certainly didn't grow up in the city. Jim would have been probably yelling, probably some Har- <laughs> some Harlem Brooklyn rivalry that we don't know about. Um, but we'll just have to we'll have to guess in a little bit there. But uh, Perfecto, um, why don't you catch us up a little bit? And one, um, how did you get the best name ever? <laughs> right. Um, I I usually joke about it and um, say my parents were drunk when they had me, but. Um, it's my dad's name actually, which it's always been kind of a cross to bear because, um, call it a statistic or whatever, but you know, my Puerto Rican dad left when I was like two. So left my mom and my sister out in the city. But, um, so that name always hung over my head. Plus like kids are just cruel. Like, can you imagine growing up with the name perfecto in New York city? I mean, more people throwing at you like, like you probably wouldn't believe this, but I actually used to stutter like when I was a kid because I was like so nervous. Like I was always like, I mean, people just thought I was perfect and I didn't want to be perfect. I just wanted to be cool. And, um, whenever we had a substitute teacher and they would call roll call, I would like yell my name, like, like here before they would say perfecto because I just never wanted that name to be said. But, um, did you, so what's your middle name? My middle name is Khalil. And did you ever go by Khalil? Um, so <laughs> this is a funny story in itself. Um, I don't think I ever told you a story, but so my entire life, my entire life, I went by Khalil. Um, Probably because you didn't want to be called Perfecto. It's my middle name. I did not want to be called Perfecto. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it was boot camp for West Point. And no one in my family had ever went to West Point. No one in my family ever was in the military. I mean, I didn't have a male father figure. I didn't have a male figure, a father figure, or anyone to even ask questions to. West Point was this thing that my track coach said, hey, you're a good kid. You should probably try it out. I was like, all right. You know, like I casually filled out the military forms, and I wasn't used to filling out Perfecto Sanchez. So it was just awkward. And I, sh- I wasn't used to filling out military documents of last name, first name. 
So fast forward, I end up going to West Point. I have no idea how I even got in. The whole thing's a culture shock. They're yelling at us. We're going from station to station, grabbing all of our equipment. It's like the first week. I'm picking up my uniform, and where it should say U.S. Army and Sanchez, it said U.S. Army over my heart, and Perfecto as my last name because I mistakenly put that as my as my as my as my last name. And so not only... How much anxiety did you have in that moment? Like a name that I have avoided my entire life. I am now confronted in the one exact moment where mistakes are not taken kindly. Not only did the drill sergeants yell at me because... And think it was funny because it was perfecto. But then I was like, my bad. I actually made a mistake. So put it this way. The 4,000 kids at West Point really quickly knew exactly who I was that first week. So, um, I mean, was there anyone in your family who also went to the military academy? No, no, no. Um, like, I had no exposure to the military, no exposure to West Point. And just, like, to put a snapshot in time, um, I graduated high school in three years, in 1999. I worked full-time at Radio Shack at, like, 16 years old. And, were you, and then you went were to Harlem, West Point. So, where, where were you in high school? I was school? at Queens... I was in Queens for high school. So we left Harlem probably when I was like, I don't know, 12 or so. So my, like, so my formative years probably were Queens, but like I grew up in Harlem, but, um, 9-11 happened my freshman year. So I went into the army pre 9-11. That's oh, just shit. a distinction that I wanted to yep. like really caveat there. <clears throat> yeah. So you thought you were going to go through, get a great education. I was like, Oh yeah, it's a cool opportunity. Free school, you know, obstacle courses. This should be fun. Like if I don't like, I can quit like no big deal. Um, went in with a thick New York accent, like punk and reality quickly set in when, when nine 11, when nine 11 happened. So what was your experience like? I mean, I, so I, I grew up in Maryland. A lot of kids went to the Naval Academy where I'm from and I used to see, a bunch of naval and then I went to college in DC and there was a bunch of naval academy kids who would come down quite frankly be the drunkest humans on the planet because <laughs> it was like their little bit of freedom did you was it a bit like that for like the freshmen sophomores it's I mean it's weird because you know like the war was happening and right. so yeah you even think about that it was just a weird time like you're 18 years old like you know a sophomore were people being shipped off mid School, no, or you had to wait so till the end. You have to wait to the end, but the biggest distinction that I saw, like pre and post 9 11, um, I mean, West Point's a tough school. Like, there's a strict discipline. You know, you have your classmates and like your upperclassmen who are enforcing rules, like hazing you. The people who are the biggest hazes and like the strictest, you know, you know followers of the rules were honestly the first people to quit. Hmm. Like, when, like, when, like, the tough, like, you know, like assignments started coming down where you had to choose your branch, you know, where you were going to potentially deploy. They were the ones who was like, you know, my senator father, you know, like my parents in, in, in Ohio, like they don't want me actually going to war. So I'm just going to leave and or whatever. Maybe I'm just yeah. projecting. But there was the kids who acted super tough. But then when it came down to actually step up, they bounced. I mean, the crew you were hanging with was, I mean, when 9-11 happened, obviously, you look at poll numbers. I mean, the, the country was pretty unified and we need to go do something. Were you all like, yes, we need to go do something and like kind of just revved up because you were all together? Or was there this underlying like, yeah, we do have to do this, but oh, shit. No, so it's, it's um, 
like to, to follow up with like what I was sharing before with like the really tough kids who were following the rules. They were the ones who I think were probably the most scared because, you know, once the war happens, you actually have to ask yourself, what do you believe in? Mm-hmm. And I actually hung out with a lot of the athletes. So I played basketball like in high school. Hey. I, I played basketball like, you know, my first year at West Point. Fellow Hooper over here. Ed. Um, and the athletes were a different breed kind of because they were essentially, I was not recruited, like I was, but you were essentially playing a division one sport, but then now all of a sudden, like your first job was gonna be in combat essentially. And so the kids I hung out with were not necessarily the best cadets. I was not the best cadet, but it allowed me to really sort of hone in on my particular leadership style as I wanted and sort of to train and to sort of develop what my philosophy would be should I ever go into combat? So like, it wasn't as if I was taking a philosophy off the shelf and saying, okay, here's how you become a really good cadet. Here's how you become a really good captain. Here's how, here's what you should do. It was a different track of just asking myself like, Hey, what do I believe in? Like, do I believe in war? You know, like, I don't know, like, you know, do I have the capacity to pull a trigger? Like, you know, what branch do I want to do? These are questions that I asked myself and I had to ask myself when I was 18, 19 years old. That's crazy. What, can, can you touch on like what were the socioeconomic makeup of um, West Point? You mentioned like senators' kids, and you know, obviously you're not you coming in not a senator's kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, what was, what was the, like the makeup of the breakdown? It's um, I would say mostly affluent, and there's a few moments that really remind me of that. Um, growing up with a single mom, granted, we like from the city, an hour away. Like my mom never came up to like take my friends and I out for dinner. You know, it was like little things like that. And so it's a very tight community. Like you literally have the best closest friends ever because you live with each other, you train with each other, you go to class with each other. So we're super close. But whenever my friend's parents would come up, it was a treat for me because they would, uh, they was, they would adopt me. And this kind of a mindset I've always had growing up, like not having like the oldest child of a single mom, like, you know, I now have three brothers and sisters, and so like always latching on to like family units. And so I loved when my friends' families would come from a state that I had never been to, they would take me out. So I have a huge adopted family, and I would see sort of what a family unit looked like. And mm. so um, they all had upper middle class upbringings, but and they were proud, you know, like it was like a really huge accomplishment for their child to be at West Point. And my mom was like, proud of me, of course, but she was like, whatever you want, baby, like, I got you, you know, like, do you, like, like, you know, I trust you type of thing. And so it was a different sort of dynamic when um, I was taking care of my mom type of thing, but then at the same time, whenever my friend's parents were in town, it was like, oh, cool, this is like what, you know, going out to a nice dinner looks like. <laughs> is your mom Puerto Rican as well? My mom's Jamaican. Jamaican, okay. Yeah, so I'm half Puerto Rican, half Jamaican. Um, you know, I grew up in the same apartment as my mom did. Yeah. So my mom's the youngest of four um, women. And uh, I grew up so um, with my grandmother and my mother and like a pack of strong black women who raised me. So, like, <laughs> what, like what was that idea? Growing up, how did you like self identify or what was that internal? Or did you even think that way? It's like, I, I, I'll on it. I'll be honest. I struggle with that question. Like, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm light skinned. Um, 
half Jamaican, half Puerto Rican. My last name is Sanchez. Like I speak Spanish because I learned it, but I didn't grow up speaking Spanish in my house. Um, I mean, American, I mean, American, I, I honestly don't know. Like I was talking with them um, with Condi too, like, uh, probably I think in Chicago, even the concept of Republican and Democrat, that's not stuff we talked about. Like, you know, we don't talk about politics in growing up. I didn't, I didn't know what a Republican Democrat was until college. And I was in the military. Like, I think junior year was the first time someone asked me. I was like, oh, I don't know what the difference is. Do you think part of that was because everyone was just trying to get by and just do what they needed to do? And there's almost a layer of privilege to that step? Or I think problems are just different. You know, when you're growing up in Section 8 housing on welfare. Like, you don't, like, like white, black, Republican, Democrat. You're just trying to survive. Like, it's just a different mindset. Um, and so there's some things I just didn't worry about. Like it's a privilege to have those types of problems, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm just naive to say that, but my world was north of 125th street. Like I never went below central park, like most of my life. And so like, I didn't have a white friend until college. Probably it was just different. When did your, you said you grew up with your, with your mom and your, and your grandmother, when did they come over from Jamaica? Are you like second generation or first generation? My mom was the youngest of four, so she was born, she was born in New York, and so my grandmother was born in Jamaica, and so technically I'm third generation, or second generation, I don't know. I think, second generation. I think second, I think your mom's first, and then you're second generation in Jamaica. Yeah, I'm second. And then my father, I mean, we can get into this if you want, but I met my father when I was 19, Mm -hmm. um, and he was born in Puerto Rico. Born in Puerto Rico. Got it. Okay, crazy. And then, like, the, the, so the, you know, kind of jumping back to West Point, all of your friends were probably mostly white? Yeah. Okay. And they were they like, were a lot of them like legacy West Point, you know, cadets? Um, they had family? You can't say a lot were legacy, but there is a huge legacy of just big families, um, legacy military at least. Um, there was an interesting race dynamic at West Point. Um, so I, for some reason or another, I ended up becoming really good friends with the hockey team. Cause like we would like the hockey rank was next to the basketball, yeah, rank, yeah. you know, same place. So it would kick with the hockey team. And they were cool. They were funny. And it was different, you know, like good, good kids or whatever. Um, and I'm, I'll never forget like, uh, some of the football players came up to me, like black, black dudes from the South. And they're like, yo, dude, like, why, like, why you hang out with like those white boys? And I was like, what are you guys talking about? Like, whatever, like, you know, like, let's kick it. Like, I don't, I don't, I just didn't care. And there was a, it was a thing though. Um, and it was just really weird. It was like my freshman, sophomore year. Like people are like, yeah, come hang out with us. And I was like, right. okay, like, cool. Like, let's all kick it. But for them, it was a bigger macro issue that, I never really addressed head on, but that's always been my personality. I've always been the person to just jump right into any difficult conversation and handle it rather than like be like on, you have to be on one side of the fence or right or wrong. Like I want to talk about it head on. So, um, I didn't, this didn't phase me, but it was a thing. So how, how long after graduating did you deploy? 
I was one of the first kids in my class happenstance to deploy. Um, and that's just the nature of the track. And so I chose infantry. And so my mindset choosing infantry, this is another dynamic. So infantry is combat arms. Like it's the tip of the spear. You're kicking indoors. And that alone is like the 1% of the 1% type of thing because not everyone serves. Not everyone serves in combat arms. There's about 17 different branches. So I could have chose finance and been at a desk. Did you say there's a, did you know the percent of what people actually serve you said? Like it's only one percent of the population of, oh, of the population, of the population is, is usually the number that right, gets right. thrown around. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, so don't quote me on that. Yeah. But I chose infantry and my mindset was, listen, like we're going to fight a very complex. I was going to be in a very complex like, situation in, in, like, in Iraq. Um, and I wanted to be around people who knew what they were doing and I wanted to know what I was doing. So I wanted the best training. And so I decided to say yes to everything. Ranger school, airborne school, like combatives, like I took every single course I could possibly take. Um, and I loved it. Like I absolutely loved training hard, fighting hard. Um, back then and still now, it's still an all male, like, um, like branch. So um, it was went with all my best friends. So what rank were you when you, you, you started? Because I know you ended up as a captain. Yeah, so you, you start off as? as a second lieutenant, yep. um, first lieutenant. To answer your question, um, it was a year of training, including ranger school, and then I went straight to Ramadi um, in 2006. Um, Ramadi, Iraq, which is just west of Fallujah. This is right after the Battle of Fallujah. Right. And if you look up Ramadi, it's the most dangerous. It was named the most dangerous city in Iraq. And I'm thinking... Well, who was there at that point? Was it... in? What group was there? So it's on the Western border. Um, yeah. So you have a lot of foreign fighters coming in through Syria. Um, and it's along a main corridor where, you know, the insurgents, foreign fighters mostly wanted to keep it open. Um, open being so they can, the free transport of, you yep. know, they don't have planes. You know, they got to drive their shit <laughs> into the country. And so it was coming in from Syria. And so that we were like the first line of defense pretty much. Um, so are you like on a base at night and then during the day you're patrolling the streets? So great question. Um, I was right at the cusp of a very complicated um, shift in military strategy. So my boss's 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 boss probably, whatever, was General Petraeus. And this was right at the cusp of the, uh, the, the surge. And so I was on a little camp, um, maybe two miles outside of the city, close enough to where we can get mortars which that's a story for a different day when you have bombs going off around you in your sleep and that's terrifying. But we would, yes, drive out of sector, out of camp into sector every day, seven days a week for eight to 12 hours a day. But the shift was we started to actually build small outposts in town, which blew everyone's mind. I was like, wait, we're going to be building outposts in town and sleeping there. Mm -hmm. And the people like the locals, are like, you being shot at daily or, well, we were being shot at daily period. Like, right. you know, regardless of where we were sleeping. Um, and that's why it was named the most dangerous city. And like, I thought, oh yeah, everyone must be going through this. This is just must be normal. I didn't know what we were going through with special, but like getting shot at, like, War, people think war, like think of Hollywood movies and video games, but getting shot at is one thing. Um, returning fire and shooting your own weapon is another mm -hmm. thing. 
but when you start to see like bodies like and like from both sides like we would walk and we'd go through sector and we would see shia and sunni violence and like they'd be chopped up bodies in the middle of the street or when you like i lost soldiers like based off of like who are with me and seeing your friends like shot like and getting blown up um ieds are another thing like i mean i hit ieds like like that shakes your world um and so it was a it was every single day for for about that was my first deployment um i did two eventually so there was a military channel documentary you were a part of yeah and i think you you were on like abc you did a bunch of you did like a whole tour of talk it was on a specific battle was it what, what battle? That was in Ramadi, right? That was the, it's, it was the Battle of Ramadi. Um, that was a weird experience because um, this could be another segue too, but like mental health. I mean, I never talked, I never saw a therapist. I never talked about it. And this was, I was probably 28, so it was maybe like 80 or eight years ago or something. A random writer reaches out to me and is like, yo, like I want, you know, to hear your story. Your name keeps coming up. I was like, no, thank you. Um, they call me again. I was like, listen, like your name keeps coming up. Everyone like says like you were there and we want to talk about it. I'm like, no, I, I don't want to no. talk about this at all. <laughs> Whatever questions you have, I don't know who you are. And I'm in marketing. So I know people have an idea and a concept. It, does, it doesn't always go to production. And finally, like I was thinking about it and I was like, you know what? Why am I saying no? It's because I'm scared and I'm trying to protect myself or I'm also thinking that this is my story. But what really turned the corner for me was my responsibility, saying that this, is, this isn't this is my story. Like this is, I had 35 men who I was responsible for and the families who lost their loved ones. Like I need to tell their story. And so after I sort of shifted my mindset there, it was very easy. I said, yes, um, I, I, I made the mistake of just going and talking. And I ended up like, whatever, it was a great experience. Um, and my whole focus was to make sure that I, you know, told the stories of my guys who were on my left and right, who were just incredible. And um, it got, it took off. So it went, so Discovery bought it. Um, it ended up being like a three, four season thing where they were going to different battles across all different wars, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, talking about sort of real life Band of Brothers type of thing, not doing historical like documentary style, but wasn't more there real footage. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tons of footage. It's yeah. all real footage. Yeah. This wasn't reenactment. No, no, it was all real footage. So how was that for you? Because so now you've gone through this, the footage is literally of you losing men. Yeah. Uh, then you having to talk about it. You haven't unpacked any of yeah. this and then you're going back. You're probably, f- f- there's a, there's a, I'm sure adrenaline rush in the moment of I'm on TV, I'm doing these things. But then you go back to life yeah. and just to your job and you still have those thoughts in your mind, which you probably do already. Yeah. Um, I mean, were you feeling a little almost like depressed from like the come down or how, what was that emotionally like? Or was the process of talking through it since you had not unpacked it for a while? Was, was yeah. that in and of itself therapeutic. therapeutic? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um like I would say yes to both. I mean, it was very therapeutic because I think the best thing was my guys reaching out to me saying, wow, I never thought of it that way. Because at that time, you're a speck. I mean, I'm looking at what's in front of me. So the greatest thing that happened to me after 
that documentary was perspective. And it's like, oh, wow, what we did was special. I thought what we did was just our job. Um, but it actually stood up to, you know, the testament of saying, yeah, what we did, we were part of something greater. And so that, that really sort of helped frame things up for me. And um, the feedback from my guys um, doing justice for them was the most important thing for me. And then just dealing with the stories or the memories, I think that's something that I've always sort of confront on a day-to-day basis, like just in life. And so that framework of, yeah, a bad thought happens or something you know, challenging, I'm facing something challenging, whether it be at work or in my personal life, just seeing it for what it is and not attaching emotions or feelings to it. I had developed those coping mechanisms, I think, as a child in Harlem to where I was able to like, I hate to say this, but like kind of like deal with or coast through a lot of the memories in the military. And guess what? I do the same thing every day, like walking down the street to come here. You know, like (laughs) it's, it's life is a grind. Life is a grind. And if I were to hold on to negative emotions or people who are trying to kill me, I wouldn't get to where I were, to where I'd, I need to go. And so I'm very fortunate and I'm not making this laughing matter because mental health is a very serious issue that doesn't just affect the military. Um, um, it's something that I think you know affects all of us that we are just learning how to potentially talk about it. And I'm even learning how to even sort of frame it up for myself because it's a practice, it's a choice, and like it's and I'm fortunate enough to at least be able to choose like like how I want to react. Hmm. Um, and so, yes, the documentary helped just sort of put a bow on some of the things that I just didn't know what my guys thought type of thing. But even to this day, I get notes from people who I haven't talked to in decades, um, thanking me for like putting things into words, which is a challenge in itself. Mm. Before moving on to the from the documentary, just one last question. I mean, you're a marketing exec. Yeah. You know, and you you mentioned this at the beginning before you started telling um, how they reached out to you for the documentary, but you can't bullshit a bullshitter. <laughs> Did they, was the documentary, I haven't seen it, I, I am going to check it out. Um, is there some weird, there's no like sort of Hollywood tinge on it. Is it how, 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 you know, uh, did they sort of keep intact the integrity of it? They did a great job. Yeah, they did a good job? They did a great job. Um, and, um, and again, like, um, I'm going to forget people's names, but um, like Tim Ferriss in one of his books asked, like, I think Jocko Willink, who is like a legend in Navy SEAL, what his favorite military documentary was. And he said, my documentary was wow. his favorite military documentary of all time, which is like, it was, again, as, as Farber mentioned, um, it wasn't meant to be like a story. It was like, hey, here's real footage. Here's what happened to these people. And so it was real people telling their stories, not trying to teach people about the Battle of Ramadi, but more so trying to really show how weird and terrible and complex battle is or combat is. And you can't even do that. You can't, you can't even do that with just footage. But I think the emotion, I mean, I, I cried. Like, I, I teared up. Um, like, whenever I thought about my men, like, I teared up. And so, like, that was real because I never said those words before. Um, and so, yeah, 
it was, it's interesting because you are someone who a, and so much of you do, you know, whether it's your professional or things you're doing with your friends, you're always kind of putting people first. You don't really talk about yourself, <laughs> yeah. which is actually why I was really excited to have you on. Cause you rarely actually dive into actually the things that you've accomplished. Uh, and I remember when I first found out that you had this documentary and you kind of said it very matter of factly. And <laughs> like, I was like, wait, like record pause, <laughs> like you were in a documentary I don't yeah. know about. And I watched it like early morning on a Saturday. I don't know what I was thinking. And it is incredibly emotional. And also to see you emotional and like, you know, fucked me up even kind of more. Cause I'm like, Oh damn, this is already heavy subject matter. Uh, but then here's my friend and I'm watching him kind of go through this process of this kind of reenactment. Um, so definitely, yeah, I don't know. It was it's, it's pretty yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. Like, and I think it's, I mean, I, it, I think that's important. Like I tend to over rationalize things. Like that's just like my nature. Like I'm very like matter of fact or like, here's how I feel. Here's what I think. Here's what I want. Um, it's guided me. It's allowed me to honestly like pull myself up by the bootstraps or whatever you want to call it from a kid who grew up with on welfare with no father, like no trust fund to go to school and I can be where I am today. And it's like, but I think the emotion is, uh, is important too. Like having, the balance between like talking about things. I'm, I'm learning to, I need to, I'm challenging myself to do that more. And a good friend of mine said like, you know, like it's not my, again, it's not my story. You know, like it's like, I was, God put me on this earth to, you know, do what he wants me to do. And like, I need to sort of like celebrate that and contribute to society in a positive way and to help make a difference. And that mindset allows me to sort of like continue going because um, there's so much more le yet to do, I think, you know, yeah. a lot of things I want to do. And, and so part of it's going to be like, how do I sort of take what I learned to make the world a better place, hopefully. So, I mean, you know, we're not really an entrepreneurial pod, but the, the quick <laughs> is, I mean, Perfect is doing <clears throat> all sorts of stuff in the, the marketing space and entrepreneurial space. He I mean, he wrote across the, the North <laughs> Sea to raise money for the oceans. I mean, so many of his things are very cause-based social impact. How do we, you know, activate uh, people in their jobs kind of in like a higher purpose? Um, so you have all these different things, but, you know, you rarely talk about politics and you even said you grew up without politics. Um, but I know kind of behind the scenes, you would probably, I don't, and I don't know if you even think party wise, but you would label yourself, I think more of a conservative, Am yeah, I correct. putting words in your mouth. No, that is correct. I do. I would lean, I do lean conservative and you're very comfortable in those settings. Yes. You know, I mean, you have this awesome, you know, little house in, in the cat skills you've been <laughs> kind of building up like, you know, weekend by weekend on, yeah. on your own. And it is in the middle of Trump country. Yeah. And you're very comfortable in those settings. And as you kind of explained to me, I mean, everyone's just a neighbor and we're all just trying to figure this out. And that's seemingly even going back to your experience at West Point where you were just, even though you'd grown up, as you said, kind of with all people who are either black or Hispanic, yeah. you're kind of just hanging with the white guys and you're like, I'm just going to do this. So did you ever in any part of the process start thinking a little politically? I mean, when did it kind of register in your mind that you were conservative and, and how, how was that even, I don't know, how did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, like politics as a, in general, I think is just super complex. And I think just my, my perspective with politics is that it just lacks integrity. And when you grow up in the hood, like if you're a bullshitter, like you're not gonna get respected. Like, you know, if you like, 
in the military, if you don't, if your friends don't trust you, they're not going to like, you're not going to survive. And then in politics, like at the very top of our country, you have this ugly, just, just, you know, disrespectful, I think, entity, like for what our nation was founded on. And so that's like my, that's my, my general view on like politics as a, as a whole. Like if you look at what our, our constitution, like politics of the constitution aside, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, like all like humans or all men are created equal. Like all humans are created equal. It's a very powerful statement of what a country should stand on. And I just believe like I want to help move our country forward and the policies that I gravitate towards is less government. Um, like we need to, the government needs to protect the people and to provide services um, to protect like our like security. So like they provide education to invest in its citizens, but not to meddle in as much. And so we're trying to like, can we curse on this podcast? Yeah. We're trying to unfuck this country and we need like probably more li- we need liberal ideas to like push our government to the 21st century but if i were to look at the role of normal government i don't want big brother looking down and being all up in everyone's business and so that's more of a conservative way of thought um versus like a lot of just welfare programs and a lot of even though i grew up on welfare um i, I don't want a lot of different programs that are just government spending on on like on just on services without like really building sort of infrastructure. I think there's other ways to sort of um, build up like our country. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned that uh, some liberal policies being good, but then you know, kind of the Big Brotherish kind of federal mm-hmm. sort of government supremacy kind of thing, overlording the states. Um, so you're thinking more sort of state-based like states being the laboratory of democracy kind of thing absolutely almost like almost like a state's rights kind of stance or you know how, how does that how does that shake out exactly like i definitely believe in checks and balances i mean i think you know the government needs to police itself like that is completely broken in this day and age when you look at the executive branch can completely sort of usurping all resemblance of what is a democracy and then yes i do think states need and should enact what is the right sort of structure for what is unique to that area. I mean, we have a really big country, like New York is very different than Nebraska. You know, New York City is very different than upstate. Like, you know, so even the electoral college is completely broken in terms of representation. So I think we need to get, our, we, our system is broken. Like our government, I think is completely broken that needs to be fixed. Um, when I say, when I think of conservative, it's just a general sort of view of what how little I want government to be involved in the day-to-day life but what I dedicated my life to is social impact which is really around sort of probably private sector coming in and doing more um, work to sort of help sort of the local community and the local populace so around making more sustainable business Um, so maybe that's really where I look at states rights you know business responsibility and and big federal government responsibility all working together got it I mean, conservatism is is a sort of a, a strain that um, exists on in both parties. Do you know? Are you more like Republican conservatism? Absolutely not. Like I would never say that because I think the Republican Party is completely corrupt. I think the Democratic the Democratic Party is completely corrupt, and so I would not 
at all. So are you, are you, did you not vote in the last presidential election? Um, I did not vote for Hillary Clinton in the last presidential election. Got it. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Um, I voted third party. Okay. Um, which, I mean, I'm the devil to a lot of people because... For voting third party? Yeah, just by principle. And there's a lot of hypotheticals you can project to say that, well, I put Donald Trump in office and blah, blah, blah. And I mean... So you feel, do you feel like more libertarian? Like, sure. Like, put whatever word you want. Put it this so way. So you don't really like, f- when, like labeling it to when, that. When Dave Chappelle was like, listen, like, let's give this guy a chance and then immediately regretted it. That's kind of where I was, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, like there's, there's, you know, our country is, I think is lost. I mean, you know, I don't try to address problems, but from the policy, policy level, like I'm not a government, I'm not an expert in policy and politics. Like I have been to every single state in this country, except for Hawaii and Alaska. Yeah. I have friends from almost every single state because I served in the military. You know, I lived in Southern Georgia. I live, you know, in the military. I've spent a lot of time in the Midwest because of, you know, that's where I like to travel. Like in America, like I've been to, like I travel to America. There are people that want the same exact things that we do that happen to be like just of a different, like political party, different religion, in a different race. And we have not yet figured out as a country how to address and bring everyone together. We have major, major race issues, issues in this country. Huge. Like that we have never confronted. Like even we have major like religion like issues in our country. The evangelical right is like going to continue to be a huge sort of influence on this country until we're able to sort of confront like what are the actual values that we want to believe in so we're pandered politicians i believe pander to what will get the vote because our system i think is broken and so i will never align towards one side or another i say i'm leaning conservative but like if i if i have to vote republican because i believe that's the better candidate then I will vote Republican. If I believe that the Democrats are a better candidate, I will vote Democrat. I will not vote and I don't believe in party lines. Let me ask you a little bit of a loaded question. So you want smaller government, but you're a former military guy. Obviously healthcare is by far the number one budget item, military's second. Are you someone that thinks the military budget needs to go bigger, stay the same, smaller, just at the end of the day, it's such a big number, it's hard to even really so, intelligently like, make a description. It, it, I, I, will, I will reframe that question and not answer with the number saying up or down and to say that, you know, as a conservative, like I believe that the government has certain roles and protecting the people is one of them. And I think our government, our government, sorry, I think our military is, believe it or not, I do think we're falling behind. Um, and I do think that our society is falling behind um, in terms of like who like who would even serve? I mean, when you look at some of the things that are happening in Syria and some of the things that are happening in politics as as, in, as a whole, I worry that this is not going to attract the next, the top talent um, for our military. But don't get me wrong, I don't believe in nationalism. I don't believe that we should rally the troops, start a war and like get really good people fighting for our country. No, I think we need to build a way that people can serve their country to protect their country, uh, sorry, our country, um, so that we can build a future generation of people who can contribute effectively to society. I think it was uh, Pete Buttigieg, and you, can, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was trying to enlist some sort of like service thing where did. you didn't, yeah, you didn't have to join the military, but you could like 
be a park ranger. Absolutely. I like he, he is the one that he is a candidate doing that. And I could not support that enough. Like, yeah. and he's probably my favorite candidate right now. Yeah. I was going to ask if he was, he's, he's my absolute favorite candidate. I think like he's very direct. He has like, don't get the, 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 is a big portion of him being a military guy or do you just no? Like, I can care less about, I don't think he, I don't even know what he did in the military. Like I don't think <laughs> like, 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 like I, like it's, I'm probably tougher on the military people because like, yeah, whatever. But, um, why? Yeah. But like, I, yeah, that makes sense. the only thing I really don't like about, and I don't know if he evolved it, but is his policy and penal reform. Um, but, um, but just to, to go back to what I was saying, I, I mean, I honestly think that, there's a disconnect between, I mean, I think American culture is also suffering. I mean, like there's a disconnect, a, a disconnect between I think service and what it means to be an American. I think we need to have more people who want to serve. And I don't think our military is there to attract them, to employ them, to inspire them. And so I don't think it's necessarily putting more money into the military, but I think our military needs to evolve. Yep. Interesting. The, can I, Stepping back, you're—I mean—you're a social social issues guy. And you mentioned just sort of the, the the private sector. Is does in order to address larger social inequality, are private solutions the answer? To address, um, so like that's so this is where like maybe this is a perfect I think platform to talk about. I don't think government will solve social issues for this country. I think we have a huge societal issue and that's really where maybe I'm putting a label on saying conservative and saying putting the responsibility on quote unquote on private sector because listen, companies are going to want to make money and like, you know, and how to make money, it's the pull and the demand of the people. And so chicken or egg, do we change the demand of the people and force it down by government or can companies create a new demand for what it means to like do the right thing. And so it's cheaper right now to use single use plastics to build, you know, to, to, to sell, to sell water. But if a company were to say, okay, here's a better way of doing this where I can still hydrate the country and have people feel good about themselves and it makes business sense. I am recognizing a lot of innovation will come from those types of thought leaders and those types of, um, campaigns or, or products or or even issues like that's the way we're going to have to start shifting society that will shift society quicker in my opinion than big government or government impl implementing a policy that will be partisan and so that's really where i think you know that's really what my hypothesis is his has has it um historically has has state intervention or government intervention made inequality worse in your opinion has state intervention made inequality worse? Um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at like the women's right issues with with in Georgia. I mean, like the, the you know states who are or who are like who are pulling back Roe versus Wade. Like that's really where it, it that's without checks and balances. Like so, I think that's a policy where it's happening behind the scenes in like with the court system. It's happening with with like a, with a huge. Um, I believe uh, with, 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 with lobbyists and then people in big government who are pushing an agenda forward in, through the states that is that needs to be checked. And so that's really where I would go back to say checks versus balances. Like there needs to be some guidance, not completely so, this willy nilly. So I think you tapped on something interesting. I just want to just jump upon, which is uh, I guess 
just the way, just behavior as, as humans. So you're basically saying, you know, with certain government stuff, it's it's a little bit against our typical want for consumption, right? Um, but then, you know, we look at the last like 30, 40 years, especially because so many public companies, shareholder demand, everything basically having to be at the benefit of the shareholder. You know, probably one of the biggest issues we have is wages haven't gone up in, you know, 30, 40 years. And, you know, a, a company CEO is like, well, I'm doing my job. I was taught this way. I went to business school. I'm, I'm doing my job. So even if I change the, the type of plastics I'm using, which have an, uh, an environmental benefit, the people that, the, the, you know, Bob Iger has been on a big press tour. Yeah. He goes on Ellen. He goes on Oprah. They're all pals. Everyone's like, you should run for president. 150,000 people. He's obviously, he's raised shareholder value in a huge way, but you still have people working at Walt Disney that are under the poverty line, right? Yeah. So people would say, well, you know, this is why we need some sort of more government intervention because we can do all the social programs with, you know, business givebacks. But at the end of the day, people just need to be able to pay for their rent. Yeah, I mean, but again, this is more of a hypothesis, and so yeah, we're just like, hypothesizing. But here. because here's what I would say: like, the government could interject and for enforce Walt Disney to pay higher wages, or people can stop watching Walt Disney. Like, you know, like what's going to move the needle quicker, and what's going to implement longer form change? And I think as a population, we're slowly starting to become more conscious to the power that the people actually have. Um, which I think, you know, I mean, I can, I might go into it, but that's why I think, you know, cancel culture and like, you know, starts to be like a start for how, for giving people a voice, you know, um, for the longest time, the people who have stood up and said, and, and, you know, like, like, like the mark, like the, you know, like the civil rights movement, like, you know, like having leaders like who lead people to implement change, to force like actual change to happen. That to me is a, an effective measure that we're not properly tapping into versus waiting for a politician and government to f put a law in order to fault, to, to change minimum wage because the wage gap, it's a wage gap. That's the issue. Like, you know, people are going to continue getting richer and guess what? Politicians lining their pockets. I don't trust politicians. Like mm. I don't trust government. Like, so that's really where the, right. my, my concern is like, I don't trust any one individual to do the right thing. So some of the, some of the ideas You're might actually cancel make cancel culture. I think, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's the right to it. I think there's merit to it to but how it's but that in itself it's it's a power trip and it and getting completely out of hand in my opinion but i think what it represents of giving people power to actually stand up and create a voice that is the lesson from it and the other thing the most important mm -hmm. note that i said it's the elevated consciousness of this country that i think is what's going to shape and preserve the country and our values not more government you, mm. uh, you are so complicated, Perfecto. I, <laughs> I fucks with it, though. Because, yes, I, Farb hates cancel culture. I'm, a, I'm more of your, you know, on your camp. I'm, Luke, I'm, 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 I wouldn't say I hate, <laughs> but I'm somewhere in the middle. So, like, here's how complicated I am. I also hate con cancel culture, but what it represents, I think, is the right notion that we need to learn how to adopt and evolve. Like, we, like so, like, it, like, the witch hunt, like, you know, I'm, like, not I'm not calling it a wind shot, but like the this notion of 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 hanging people on burning people 
because they disagree with your personal values, I don't think it's gonna actually make long-term progress for us. But if the more we can hold people, companies, institutions um, responsible by how we as a individual community and society act, I think it's an equalizer. That needs to be elevated. We're barely scratching that surface, like scratching what that is in this day and age. So you like it because it's for there's so many bullshitters saying this and that, and it's calling them out and kind of Correct. leveling the player. We need leaders. Like I think yeah. we just need. I can agree we, with that. We need like we need leaders and like we need leaders. Like we just need people who say, "Hey, like this is not me. The leader's not me. I'm going to be the hero. I'm the one telling you to cancel." Like, like, but no, how do we create like real legitimate movements that contribute to society and bring people together? That's what we're not at all doing in this day and age. Well, cancel culture is like this. It, it's like this democratic force, right? I mean, it's kind of like it, it's just the natural result of chickens coming home to roost, right? You, you have these populations of people that um, were powerless for a really long time. They just have more cultural power and have the ability to you know, um, uh, state their prerogative and 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 put their stamp on like what's acceptable culturally or societally, right? You got, of course, there's obviously overcorrections, and it can get kind of cartoony at, at some points. But the principle of cancel culture is that um, you know we, as a historically voiceless, powerless group that have now have more power relatively. To, to what we used to have, but it's not equal now by any means. Um, we're be able to we're we're able to sort of um, come out in the scene and, and and state our agendas as well to just it, it more of like this equalizing move kind of thing. Like that's that's kind of what it is. Yeah, it's messy, but it's it's. I mean, folks only just got power fifty years ago. You know what I mean? Women only got you know a lot of they only be able to sign for their own credit cards in the seventies. Roe v. Wade in seventy three, like. You know, black people ain't got the, the right to vote in 65. You know, housing discrimination got outlawed on paper legally, 68. Like all of these things, you're seeing like the, the, the sort of the, the, the snapback of it. And a lot of it is just, it's just happening on Twitter. But people kind of look at it like it's like this, not too far, but like this, you know, this like <laughs> stupid, ridiculous hissy fit or something. Like that, that's the natural result of like people feeling oppressed and, and coming out and, and having a say in, in, in their agenda. Basically, yeah, that's how I see it. Look straight up. I, 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 I think there's like I completely agree on this merits to both sides. I mean, in general, I think people. I believe people want to do good. I believe that people want the Amer like America to succeed. I believe that you know that you know people want to be happy. And so, how do we get there? And I think just giving them clear, distinct actions and how to do that, not waiting for a politician to pass. Uh, um, like, if I knew that here are the ten things I can do to potentially help, you know, like project women's rights, you know, in, in the states that are rejecting Roe versus Wade and, mm -hmm. and whether it's voting for the right politician, whether it's like not supporting the exact companies that like that are that are potentially lobbying, you know, or like putting money into 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 anti lobbying sort of um, institutions. Like it's empowering the people to actually take action for the world that they want to live in. So that's what I think we need to be better at is empowering people, not just sort of stabbing each other and cutting each other up. I feel you. And I feel you 100% on like just politicians being self-serving and, you know, you know, focused on self-preservation in terms of them them and their power, right? Being dishonest, telling whatever story narrative in order to, 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 to get into office so that they can individually or hook up their bodies up, blah, 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 kind of thing. But government intervention historically has done a lot of good for oppressed 
groups. For one example, well, you know, the black people couldn't vote legally until 65, right? The Voting Acts, the, the Voting Rights Act. Um, and what happened? T 2012, there was a Supreme Court case where um, they basically rolled back a, a key provision on the Voting Rights Act, which made it so that states, before making any big decisions to change, like, you know, their voting apparatuses needed to get pre-clearance from the federal government because historically they're the ones that would suppress black people's vote and basically render them, um, you know, basically curtail their citizenship as a result. Um, so this 2012, I hope it's, a, I hope that's the right year. The Supreme Court decision was like, no, let's give power back to the states and, and remove this, this federal government provision. And this is where you're getting, a, and then, and, and, and uh, it affected uh, disproportionately black people in the South. And um, this is the whole uh, idea of voter suppression. Like this is the, this is the current epidemic and traced directly back to 2012, which was a rollback of, of government intervention. So, I mean, that's just one example, right? But I think just in this long record of American history, the only reason black folks have got any rights in this country has been because of the federal government. You know what I mean? So, but I, it's, it, it's tricky though, but that's just sort of the historical record from what I, from what I, you know, I just looked, the, uh, the Supreme Court case was actually 2013, not 2012. I got that date wrong. See, so I, like, I disagree. I would say, um, like, not disagree. It's, it's, it's more so how we got there. You know, it's, I'm not going to go to the federal government and say thank you for giving us rights. I mean, the reason why black people got there, I think, it's because of leaders stepping up, coming together, you know, saying no, that we're not going to take this anymore. Because I also could posit that the government would have kept on going and, like, not fixing anything um, unless we stepped up and said, Hey, this is wrong. And so like, and we forced their hand. I mean, how many times, like how, like the, the riots, like, you know, the, yeah. the, like even the police beatings, like, you know, like the, the sit-ins, like, you know, like, you know, like going to the white house, like you're going to, you know, to like knocking on, on, on our, on like on doors, like and making, taking action that forced the government. And so, conceptually just conceptually i think the role of government is to serve the people and right now the government has way too much power because the government in my opinion thinks that the people look at donald trump like it's the people that give him power he doesn't care about giving anything to the people in my opinion and so that's really where i think just conceptually just conceptually that's the paradigm shift that i want to help elevate or that's my political view saying that the people need more power and need to recognize that the people are the ones who have the power to step up and to take action that is what would force and the government's job yes is to write that law no i agree is with to you. write that law yeah, yeah. and to enforce that law right. but we need to be the ones to make them write that law i'm not waiting for anything oh i agree 100 percent with that yeah no I, th I think i think you just you just changed the framing a bit but i totally agree it wasn't it wasn't a gift of the federal government. It wasn't like, it wasn't, we, we weren't some charitable objects. Yeah. We pushed and we forced it, right? Second, the second reconstruction, the Civil Rights Act of the 60s, right? It's literally, you know, freedom riders in Mississippi registering voters in 63, you know, resulted in black and white people getting killed, um, you know, but it, it's, it's the push of us forcing the hand of the government during the Cold War, making, making America look fucking really bad in the UN, Soviet Union laughing at us, you know, you know, during during that whole period and 
forcing like LBJ to pass some real federal legislation. It's the legislation itself. He probably, he probably didn't want to. <laughs> he, no, he didn't want yeah. to. It, he, like he he was partly enlightened, but but you're right. There was a clear interest for him and America to look better and better position itself mm-hmm. to where uh, black racism in the South was just not affordable as, as 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 it was before in that current period. But it doesn't happen without the without the uh, uh, the forceful push of black people going out there and, and fighting and rioting and registering voters and all of those things. Like like that's exactly it, man. Like if, if people are lying in their pockets, they're not going to change. Like like yeah. like I mean, like to bring it full circle, like look at the Iraq and Afghanistan war. I mean. The government did not care that, and um, this is extremely controversial, but was it a just war when you look at all the people who got, all the government officials who got super, super rich off of that? I mean, and we're still fighting it. And so, like, I don't Mm -hmm. expect the government to do the right thing for the people unless we hold them accountable and call them out. And there's, I think, the look at the systems that are actually doing that, like, I mean, such as the failing New York Times. I said, I said that in air quotes because I love the New York Times and I subscribe. They're the ones calling shit out and be like, yo, this is like, let's, let's empower the people to hold our government accountable. And that's the checks and balances that I think is often forgotten. Super interesting. Quick question about you. Okay, so and Ed, I think we're we're out of time. So final question. Final question. Oh Jesus! This is so big. <laughs> just, but just like like black conservatism. The historical strain in this country has been tied a lot to like black nationalism, hmm. right? And it is, and there's a, there's a, the way you describe like turning away from government. Hmm. Um, that's a huge theme. It's like and a like, Killer Mike theme. It is, right? I we I I don't agree at all with Killer Mike. We can talk about that. <laughs> we'll bring you back. To talk about that. I don't know if you can fuck with him, but yeah, um, I like his music. But this is Kanye. No, <laughs> yeah, but like black nationalism. Uh, uh, Turning away from government and turning inward for the solution is a huge, huge black nationalist strain. Garvey, Malcolm, even the beginning with Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. like black conservatism and that in in conservative conservatives that are black, sometimes they vote democratic, sometimes I think they probably mostly vote democratic. Yeah, but yeah, mostly your vote. thoughts on black nationalism. Is that something you subscribe to at all or so again? The concept and labels, you're probably getting a theme from me. Um, yeah. Like to call it black nationalism, um, one, I hate the word nationalism because it's mm-hmm. like, you know, that's it's a zero sum game. It's a have and have not to not looking at a collective wholesome solution where we can all thrive. And I think we need to start thinking bigger. And so like, that's why like, so I'm breaking down the label a bit. Mm-hmm. And then black people coming together to protect their own rights. I'm all for that. Could you do that in a way where it's actually completely additive to society, inclusive in society, and protecting the rights and representing the rights of black like Americans, you know, or black people in, in this country or in this world? Absolutely. Like I think we need more of that. That's where I am thinking like leadership. We need leaders in our society stepping up to represent and to bring collective issues to the forefront so that we can have productive conversations all for it. Mm. Integrationist? You're an integrationist? What does that mean? I mean, that's a label. Like, like, before I answer yes or no on that question, you, you need deseg- to define it. You want desegregation. What does that mean? That means um, uh, uh, breaking up ghettos where black people have been trapped by the government and integrating them into the larger American society, which way they will then prosper. That's that's definitely a method. I'm a product of busing myself. Um, ah, but nice. um, like I think... 
I mean, we, so that's again, so I, uh, going back, I know we were out of time, the short term, like where we are in this country, it's broken. Mm-hmm. There's a lot we need to unfuck. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of generational systems like that have kept a lot of people down that I do think we need that quote unquote jump start. And you can call me like a, a hypocrite or whatever for going flip flopping or whatever. But no, I think that, you know, we're going to need a jump start to sort of level set the playing field. And yes, I do think that there need to be more opportunities for the disenfranchised population in this country. Penal reform is another thing, and so it's not—it's not just—it's not, not just race. Um, it's, it's it's socioeconomic. It's um, it's this mental health. There's this gender. There's a lot that I think needs to be addressed holistically, so that we have a collective solution. The shit's complicated. All right, we gotta Cap- have you back. This is only part <laughs> one. That was seven part series. Before we gotta bring you back, with I Jim appreciate it. All right, we had great. Captain Perfecto Khalil Sanchez on. We appreciate you. Uh, Till next time, everyone. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.